Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have very different life experiences from mine, and we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcome around this table. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. A couple months ago, I had a conversation with a colleague about mysticism in particular Jewish mysticism. And I have read some of the Christian desert fathers who had fairly dramatic mystical experiences. So I was interested in addressing what it would be like to read the Bible with the mystics. There are several modern-day people who would put themselves in that category, and I wanted to know more about their perspective of the Bible. Two people who would put themselves in that category declined the invitation to join this podcast, so I reached out to today's guest, who is Dr. Alexander Massad. Dr. Massad is an assistant professor of world religions at Wheaton College. He does a lot of interfaith conversation and has written about both Christian and Muslim mystics, which doesn't seem to be a topic people wander into casually. So I asked him about his context growing up and about how he became interested in the mystics. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. So I'm half Lebanese and half Mexican. I grew up in a Catholic family. I was born in Houston, Texas, but my parents were living and working in Saudi Arabia. And so they came back to Houston so that I would be born uh, in U.S. hospital, but about five weeks old, I went back to Saudi Arabia. So I grew up as a Catholic kid in a uh, Ramco compound. So these are small compounds that the kind of little Americas, but it was very diverse. And everybody who was not a Saudi citizen lived on that compound. So my friends were from Pakistan, Sudan, Brazil, Russia, England. Wow. So it was very diverse, but grew up Catholic and then in high school, everybody goes to boarding school. And so I went to a boarding school called the Stony Brook School, which uh, essentially is kind of a mini Wheaton. And where's the location of Stony Brook? It's in Long Island, New York. Okay. It was founded, I think, 1922 out of a Presbyterian revivalist movement. Frank Gableine was one of the founders and his also one of the founders of like modern Christian philosophy of education. In fact, even for my, like our faith and learning classes here, we read Frank Gableine on Christian education. So that like Wheaton's model of mentorship and education is part of that model at Stony Brook. And so while there, I was chosen for some providential reason to go on a leadership retreat for students. I didn't think of myself as a leader, but I guess someone did. And that was my first encounter with the Holy Spirit, like really just moving my soul to a place that I could not explain. And that's really where I took that upbringing of being baptized into the Christian Catholic faith more seriously. So I always look back on my baptism as a promise that God fulfilled in that moment. And so I kind of shifted, and I use the language of shifted, not converted, because Catholicism and Orthodoxy and Copts and Protestants, they're all Christians. So conversion is really a misleading term. I use the word shifted. I shifted to kind of this vague evangelicalism. In college, I got connected to Reform University Fellowship, became like really reformed in my doctrines. I still am repenting from that position, but you know, still there. (laughs) I still am very fully reformed and I find a lot of Calvin's thought very influential and very helpful for me as a comparative theologian and missionary. But 
So that's kind of how I got into like deep reformed Protestant thought. And I became really rigorous in my emphasis on doctrine and the intellectualness of Christianity. And a few years later, probably around my late 20s, I started being more desire. I started to desire something more than the intellectual rigor of what I thought the Reformed tradition was giving me. And I ran into this book by Hans Borsma, Sacramental Tapestry, while I was at the University of Virginia doing my master's in uh, Middle Eastern studies. And this book was actually really important <laughs> for me in the way I thought about learning and scripture. And he has this idea that we have lost the sacramental nature of creation, not just the sacramental nature of the Bible, but all of creation itself. And he really has this idea that there are two problems, nominalism and univocity, that he roots in like the Middle Ages. And so the idea that like in nominalism, everything just has a meaning on its own, it's its own individual category, and we've resulted in just creating all these categories and dogmas and terminologies to organize all of our thoughts. And it's become very mentally engaging, but spiritually kind of dead. And the other problem is univocity, that everything has the same type of existence. So God exists, I exist, the world exists, but we all exist the same way, which means if God exists and the creation exists, and those are the same types of existence, then they exist separately from each other. Like creation doesn't need God to exist because it has the same kind of existence. That has led to the problem we have in modernity in the separation of God. And what we need is a re-engagement of the divine in creation. And I found that speaking to my longing in my soul for something deeper hmm. than just the intellectual pursuits. In my studies, in Islamic studies, so my master's and my bachelor's degrees are Middle Eastern history and Islamic studies. I started studying like the Sufi tradition. And I started seeing how in the Sufi tradition, there was a lot of intimacy between the creation and the creator. And I was wondering, where is this in my tradition? And this is why I said, I thought the Reformed tradition was only giving me intellectual answers. But going back and seeing that, oh, John Calvin has his deep theology of union with Christ, of union with the divine. And I missed that hmm. because only focusing on one thing. And he's getting this from like the patristics. So going back and reading the patristics and appreciating the way in which they integrated the sacraments with creation and that spoke to my own worship practices where I tend to be more liturgical. I appreciate what I jokingly call the smells and bells. Yes. I like the incense. I like the high liturgy. So that's my family and I tend to go to Anglican churches. That kind of heavy liturgy, sacramentalization of creation was very important for us. And so Hans Borsma's book was very important for me in kind of pushing me into the mystics and starting that journey of my interest and the mystical tradition and, and the playfulness that they have with the playfulness of God, right? Kind of God is someone who is playful and open and can't be contained simply in my doctrines. And that was helpful for me being somebody who has so many identities that I could not fit in a single category, but being able to play with these categories and hold them loosely, like still hold them, but hold them loosely helped me to be able to talk about what does it mean to be Mexican and Lebanese and American and Middle Eastern, having different languages, but also having an identity of a follower of Jesus Christ, but also being appreciative of ideas that are not inherent in the Christian tradition that I thought, but really were there 
and I just learned them from somebody else and went back and realized, oh, they were here in the tradition. I was just ignorant of that. And so the mystics really helped me with that. And that's something that's really me from my own biography that has pushed me deeper into the mystical tradition, which is something you actually find in Islamic thought too. Yeah. Al-Ghazali is a very important thinker in Islamic tradition, had this crisis of faith. He was a, a philosopher and an Islamic legal jurist and a very important teacher in kind of these early universities. He died in the exquisitely easy to remember year 1111. So easy to remember that. <laughs> but he had this crisis of faith. Like, how do I know that what I believe is true? And he came to the conclusion that philosophy doesn't explain it. Islamic law doesn't explain it. Like he needs something to give him certainty. How does he have certainty? And his conclusion was for him, the Sufi mystical path that gave him certainty. Hmm. But the problem is he couldn't explain it to anybody else. Yeah. And so what was interesting is I found myself in the same situation where I had all this intellectual capacity, but it didn't give me the certainty I craved. And I found that the mystics were speaking to the aspect of my soul that craved for something deeper that dogma didn't give me. I already have several questions, especially since people like me who tend to live in their heads, when we think of the mystics, on a surface level anyway, it can seem a little woo-woo instead of like an invitation into something deeper. And we will get there. But first, I thought we should define our terms so we're on the same page. We are not talking about engaging the spiritual realm like a psychic, although definitely future podcast ideas there because that gets very weird very quickly. And we are not talking about plants that can help us have a mind-altering experience. We are talking about the practice of mysticism. So what is a mystic and what makes a mystic a mystic? So mysticism is not about feelings. It's not about vision. such a good clarification. (laughs) Uh, It's not about spontaneous uplifting into the seventh heaven. It is not Pentecostalism. And it's not that thing that Catholics do. (laughs) (laughs) Or Orthodox. Frequently I hear Protestants say, what's that thing Catholics do? But it's also because they don't realize Orthodox tradition or the Coptic tradition or these other traditions that also do that. (laughs) It's not that. So what it is, it's a careful training of the mind and the soul to develop fruits of love and discipline to prepare oneself for the gift of experiencing the face of God or the beatific vision. Hmm. And so maybe another way to say it is It's a way of disciplining the self through intentional readings of scripture that go deeper into the soul and deeper into scripture in order to have immediate encounter with that which is behind creation, which is the Logos, which is Christ, which is God. So mysticism is a rigorous discipline that begins with an intellectual pursuit. But the goal is not intellectual. The goal is ineffable experience of the divine. And so that would say that's more what mysticism is as opposed yeah. to the the feelingsness. And I think we get to the feelingsness because 
actually had this quote from B.B. Warfield, the Protestant Reformed theologian, you know, very important. Princeton has a lot of you know, fall, uh, there's a lot of consequences for American Protestantism, especially. But in the period in which he's living in, this kind of 19th century modernity that focuses on human reasoning, the ability of the human mind to read scripture and come to meaning, the counterpart to that was a lot of romanticism, a romantic thought. So like Schleiermacher and this idea of like the feeling of the absolute presence, which Warfield did not like. And so for him, mysticism was kind of rooted in the feelings of humans about God. And he warned against mysticism because he saw it as human feeling, which is easily moved from one disposition to the next and unmoored. And if that is mysticism, then I think he is correct. But unfortunately, I don't think he's correct about what mysticism is. (laughs) It is not feelings. But I do think that's where we get it from is this kind of long history of thinking about it as feelings and wanting to be rooted in certainty. Right. And so I think it's a misunderstanding of what mysticism is because it is it does begin in intellectual pursuits, but the end is the eminence of God, the immediacy of the presence of God. So it starts rational, it starts ethical, but the desire of it is the infinite bliss of divine presence. The... People I know or have read, so Desert Fathers and Mothers in particular, or even modern day, a couple of people who've had experiences like this that they would categorize in terms of it being mystical. There's something about that encounter that is life transformation. Mm. You never go into the encounter the same way that you come out of the encounter. Would you say that that is true for a lot of those who practice mysticism? Yes, and you see this especially with, I think, of Bonaventure, for example, where he talks about... So the Songs of Song are are pretty important for the mystics, this idea of the bride and the groom. And here the bride is the mystic or the church, and the groom is God. And the idea is that... So sometimes you'll see this where the mystic is desiring God, and they have this search for God. And they think that they know what they desire. And they think that they have a longing for God. But then once they actually reach the beatific vision and have a taste of the divine, and then come back to their lived experience, they've realized what they originally were searching for was not the actual thing that they were searching for. Because now that they've encountered it, they have a taste for what they truly want. And now their desire is even more inflamed because now they've had the actual taste of God rather than the desire for the taste of God. And thus they've been fundamentally transformed. Mm. And so longing is different prior to and after to one tastes the divine. And I, I use the language of taste. I find it very helpful because, and this is the example I give in my class, there are people who take cilantro and see it as like soap. And there's many people for whom it's delicious. So, for example, I like cilantro a lot, but for me, it doesn't taste like soap. I understand that for people, it tastes like soap, but I've never actually tasted the taste of soap that other people have when they eat cilantro. And so, encountering the divine and from the mystics, I like the language of taste because it's something that someone experiences, and I can discuss it with you, and I can talk about it with you, 
but you don't have the exact same experience as I do unless you have also tasted it like I have. And thus, that kind of aesthetic language of taste I have found really helpful in talking about experiencing the divine as opposed to seeing. Because I can look and see a tree and you can look and see a tree and we're looking at the same tree, but taste is a little bit more mm-hmm. incarnate mm-hmm. in that way. And so I like the language of taste and discussing the mystics, yeah. which actually comes from Islamic thought. <laughs> Sufis explicitly use the word dhawq, which means to taste, to talk about God. And you do find it in Christian mystics too. They talk about taste, but it's explicit in Sufism. Mm. And so I found that a helpful way to discuss Christian mystics with students is the language of tastes. And it gets back to that incarnateness, the, the sacramentalization of creation. Right. What does it mean to taste God in creation and taste God in scripture? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think about my colleague, Dr. Abernathy's book, right? Savoring scripture. Yes. I don't think he meant it in the way of the mystics, but when I saw that title, I was like, oh yeah, this is the taste of scripture. What is the taste? Logos, right? That deep contemplation that is not an academic pursuit of scripture, yeah. but rather the intimate experience of the divine behind scripture. Yeah. The medieval monks, I think, had this saying about the book of Proverbs in particular, that you're supposed to chew on them like spice until they fully explode in your mouth. And again, that taste that you're experiencing something, but you're also pursuing in the experience to get the final outcome Mm -hmm. of it. Well, and that's a great example of like practicing reading scripture in a mystical way. Uh, And so kind of going back to what mysticism is and is not, mysticism or the mystical tradition is rooted in very strong disciplines. So for example, Lectio Divina is something that the monastic tradition developed in order to kind of guide monks into how to read scripture in a way that orients one towards the mystical reading. Again, mysticism is not a straight goal. It's a preparation to receive the gift. So again, borrowing language from the Sufi tradition, there is a, a great, I believe it's a Sulami, could be a Qosheri, but I believe it's Sulami, has this image of a king sitting behind a curtain. And the glory of the king is shining and radiating and the light is coming out. But the curtain is covering that. Yet the curtain is perforated with holes. So the light can shine through these little holes. When the wind blows, the curtain will move and the glory of the Lord will shine through these holes in the curtain. But the mystic will never see the glory of the Lord when the wind blows unless the mystic is oriented towards the glory of the Lord. So what is the point of the mystical practice? It's the orientation of one towards God so that when God moves, you have been prepped to receive the gift of God's presence. So you may do the discipline your whole life and never receive the gift. You may do the discipline for a week and receive the gift. Like That is up to God. But the discipline itself, that is the mystical tradition. Hmm. So I think a great example is the Carthusian tradition, monastic tradition. There's a monk, Guido II. So he was a 12th century monk. He has a book called The Ladder of Monks. And he has this kind of four-step process of Lectio Divina. Hmm. This is not the only one. There are many different ways of doing Lectio Divina. But he f- starts with lectio or reading. And so he says, read the texts, the words of the text, 
looking at each word as being pregnant with meaning, right? Being very attentive to the meaning crammed into the literal words of the text. Once you've done that, then meditate on the text. Let your mind kind of freely play over what you have read and contemplate the broader meaning of the text. And then he moves into the third, which he calls oratio, or it's the movement from the free play of the mind on the text to the soul longing for the divine behind the text, which is a, a category of prayer. It's a type of prayerful reading of texts. And that's where your discipline stops. The fourth one, which is contemplating God, is where God enters the picture. So you may be in the oratio stage, and then God encounters you in that point of prayer. And now you are not just longing for God, but you are encountering God in the scriptures, behind the scriptures, and within the scriptures. And so this is a very disciplined, rigorous process of reading the scriptures, but one that results in these larger meanings of the text that are not just constrained by literal interpretations, but are open to the broad playfulness of the Holy Spirit as it moves through the text. So like when Karl Barth says, the Spirit makes Scripture right into the Word of God, I see a mystic looking at that and saying, yes, right, the Spirit is there revealing the Logos behind the words to bring them to life in this playful manner. But again, it's not completely subjective. Like there are two paradigms that mystics always keep in hand. So one of them is, does this reading bring you closer to the beatific vision, to the face of God? But the second is, does this reading cohere with my faith tradition? So you can't just make it up. Like you are still responsible to your community of faith, but it's not simply, does this give me doctrine? No, it's a, does this reading bring me closer to the divine presence? Hmm. And that's where I think a lot of us can learn from the mystics is that I'm not just reading this for dogma. I'm not just reading this for ethical platitudes or for moral doctrines, but I'm reading this for the sake of encountering God and contemplating that. So that that's one of the reasons why I think the mystics are are really important for us in our modern society. Like we've made God into someone that we invite into our context. We say, "Here I am. Here's my context. Here's my problem. God, come in. Help me be more disciplined. Help me be more patient. Come and do something." And then then we put God back. And that's that kind of like problem of univocity that's Borsman was talking about. Well, if I exist and God exists, and God is here and I am here, then God kind of transgresses the boundaries of existence to come into mine, and he goes back into God's existence, and I stay in my existence. Yeah. But God isn't constrained by that. And I, the, what I appreciate about the mystics is they make God less nice, less constrained. I actually thought about C.S. Lewis's discussion of Aslan. Yes, right? yes. Right? So it says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so the mystics help remind us that God is not necessarily like the safe person that you can just bring in to address your problems and issues and then goes back behind the context of materialism. But rather, 
God is beyond these boundaries and God is playful and God is dynamic and maybe not safe, but in a way that wounds you with bliss rather than organized, constrained, disciplined dogma. Hmm. And so like in my students, when I talk about missions, we talk about Missio Dei or the mission of God, how the Holy Spirit precedes the church. Mm-hmm. And the mission of the church is to go into the space where God is already working and to bring Christ in that space. And I try to encourage my students to say, isn't it more interesting to have a God that excites and a God that surprises you with things that you thought you didn't know or saying things you didn't know? Isn't that more exciting than a God you understand and can put in a box? So much. Doesn't that make our faith so much more dynamic? Doesn't that make scripture so much more interesting to recontextualize it over and over again? Yeah. So the mystics, even though they're very strongly in their own context, give us the playfulness to recontextualize over and over. I love how you've been using that term several times. You used it first with the Holy Spirit and then with God and then with the mystics that playfulness part, which is something that doesn't come out very much, at least not in Protestant traditions that I know of, the playfulness of God, the joy-inducing part of God and of examining his word and developing the disciplines needed to have the encounter, to sit and wait and be amazed when Mm -hmm. he enters into that space. And I think that's something that Something I struggled with is like in doing these practices, there's a lot of <laughs> silence or quietness. And I really struggled with the existence of silence. And then I was reading Thomas Merton. So Thomas Merton is a, a more contemporary mystic Catholic tradition. He has this notion of pregnant silence. Hmm. So silence is not the cessation of sound. Rather, silence is pregnant with the deep echoes of creation that we don't hear unless we remove kind of our materialism and ourselves from the process. And this is the the other word that we find in the mystics is learned ignorance. And so you see this in like Gregory of Nazianzus. So Moses going up Mount Sinai is a very important metaphor for the mystics. The idea of when you ascend up to God, what happens to Moses, but he enters into the dark clouds that surround the mountain. So it's the idea of going up into God is entering into a form of darkness. But what is this darkness? And so for these mystics, so the Gregories, who were seminal figures for our development of Trinitarian theology, saw this darkness as the darkness of the mind, the inability of the mind to discuss God. Like our mind hits a barrier. And then we're left with silence. But it's past that silence that God exists. And it is something I can't use words to describe. Like, in fact, for many mystics, if you use words, you then lose meaning. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's something that is a difficult discipline to cultivate. But being okay with pregnant silence and waiting for the deeper meanings of God to arise out of your contemplation of scripture. And so, for example, like something as simple as the first few chapter verses of, of John, right? And just looking at what does it mean to think about the word being in the beginning and all things being created through the word. 
and then allowing your mind to jump back to Genesis or jump to Psalms or even jump to Revelations and kind of allowing the mind to move over Scripture symphonically. Robert Wilkins, a professor of, of patristics history, would talk about the patristics reading Scripture as a symphony. So each book of scripture would be like a instrument in the orchestra. And what they were concerned with was what is the overall sound I'm hearing? And so when you read these early church fathers, they're quoting from all over the place. They're not very linear. When you read a text today, it's very linear. Okay, verse one, two, three, four, five, six. But that's not how the early church experienced a text. It was this overarching sound reverberating. And so how do we rekindle that discipline of hearing the sound of scripture as it washes over us and then pushes us deeper. And that is the position of pregnant silence. Yeah. Next week, we will talk about how hard it is to develop a mystic practice and how Dr. Massad is able to teach about something that is normally practiced. I'm so glad you joined us today around the podcast table. And all of this is possible only because of a stellar team made up of people like David and Michelle Kaufman and Bob Lundberg. They are part of my Patreon team, and they are the people who financially support this project to keep it viable year after year. If you want to help support this podcast, you can share it with your friends and family. You can give it a five-star rating on whichever site you listen on. Or you can also join the Patreon team. A link is in the episode notes. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Odd Parliament did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is so good to be with you, and I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe and take care of each other and stay curious about the world around you. <laughs>